Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking Talent. I'm Nicole Fuqua. You're listening to our audio series where we dig into issues related to talent acquisition. In today's episode, we're going deep on an issue that I know is top of mind for so many employers, and that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've seen a tremendous amount of work done in this area, but there is always more to do. And we know that every organization is at a different point in its DEI journey. So today we're specifically focusing on building an employer brand and a recruitment process that is equitable and inclusive of candidates from underrepresented backgrounds. What are the best strategies? How can you build a process that takes things like intersectionality and social mobility into account? And finally, how do you get the buy-in from within your organization to make changes, especially in a challenging hiring environment? Joining me to talk about these issues is Paula Simmons, our Director of Employer Brand and Communications Strategy. Paula's background is a combination of PR and corporate communications, recruitment, and employer branding. Her role at People Scout UK enables Paula to do what she enjoys most, delivering actionable insights and consultancy to clients across a range of industry sectors, nationally and internationally. In essence, helping them to understand, articulate, and measure what makes them unique places to work. Alongside this, she also leads our work to help clients better understand and engage audiences from underrepresented groups. So Paula, I am thrilled to be talking with you today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nicole. Nice to be here. So to kick us off, can you speak a little bit about the historical or traditional ways that talent acquisition professionals have recruited candidates from underrepresented or protected groups? And how has that thinking changed? Yes, sure. So traditionally, recruitment tended to be all about limited media targeting, i.e. an organization that wanted to recruit women or people from different ethnicities or cultures would place its job adverts in the media and on job boards that they believe those demographics frequented. But what's happened over time, particularly because of engagement with different demographics, so actually speaking to people from underrepresented groups, it's become widely acknowledged that this isn't perhaps the most effective way of doing things. So, you know, just because someone might consume a type of media to find out what's going on in their community or in relation to their personal lives, that doesn't mean that they'll use that same media to find a job. So take me, for example, I'm black and female and absolutely proud to be both of those things, but neither of those factors have ever formed the basis of any job search that I've done. I'm a communications consultant by profession, so if I was looking for for a new role, I would look at platforms offering roles related to my profession. But traditionally, recruitment tended to be all about limited media targets, targeting focused on the demographics and the media they felt that those demographics would would consume. So ethnic or female media as the key focus for a channel strategy is largely a thing of the past. It's much more about targeting the right professional or work-related channel and getting the messaging right, i.e. speaking to potential candidates, not just about the specifics of a particular role, but also about diversity, equity or equality and inclusion in an organization as a whole. 
and that's because while a job title might get someone from an underrepresented group interested enough to look at an advert or a career site, whether or not that person applies for a role is highly likely to be influenced by what they read, what they see and what they hear from a wider employer brand perspective about how an organisation treats its people. So messaging, not limited media channels focused on demographics is really important. But what's equally important and what organisations are also really focused on these days is the candidate journey, because they've realised the important role that the journey plays in a successful recruitment campaign for people from underrepresented groups, because it's a way of ensuring that everybody has the best opportunity to perform at their best. So tradition used to be limited media targeting. Now it's about messaging and it's about candidate journey. So for organizations focusing on attracting a specific group, can you share some observations about those strategies and how effective they are? If an organization has looked at its workforce and its hiring data and has decided that a campaign focused on a single demographic is the best route to follow, then actually these campaigns can be pretty effective. But it's very much about making interventions at the right points. So for example, if we think about a campaign designed to attract more women, one of the key things to do there is to make sure that advertising copy is inclusive, by which I mean considering the words that are used and the context in which they're used. Received wisdom, so accepted wisdom, suggests that women can sometimes be put off when they see words such as excellent or strong, driven, or competitive. So to generate maximum engagement, one obvious intervention might be to find alternatives for these words in your advertising copy. But what organisations can also do is consider the level of role that they're hiring to, because in the work that I've done, I've spoken to many women who absolutely, yes, have found some words somewhat off-putting, but I've also spoken to senior female professionals who have told me that they absolutely expect to see words like competitive, like driven and so on in adverts aimed specifically at their level. So one key observation would be, you know, that words and context really matter in terms of running campaigns, effective campaigns that target specific demographics. That's great advice. Is there anything else employers should keep in mind? Well, many of us will be familiar with research that suggests that women are less likely to apply for roles where they don't meet 100% of the criteria, whereas men will apply if they meet a minimum of something like 60%. Interestingly, anecdotal feedback from women about why they don't apply suggests that it isn't actually because they don't feel they can do the job it's because they don't want to waste their time on an application they believe will automatically be rejected because on paper they don't meet all of those criteria. So another observation would be that if an employer wants to attract more women, then they should really only list the essential criteria because the longer that list of criteria, the less likely you are to attract women. Another observation would also be, you know, going back to that candidate journey that I mentioned earlier. 
it's really important to make sure that the diversity you want to hire is represented as much as possible in that journey. So in everything that a candidate sees and hears. So if we stick with the example of a campaign related to targeting women, it's about ensuring that recruitment communications showcases stories from females at all levels in an organization. It's about being transparent with regard to diversity, equity and inclusion data and any plans that an employer might have in place to shift the dial around female representation. And then it's also about having women represented as candidates go through the application process. So, you know, all of these sorts of things will help females realise that not only are they welcome at a particular organisation, but actually the opportunity is there for them to thrive and, and progress. So a couple of, of things that organisations can bear in mind if they are focusing on one, one demographic in particular. Is there any other advice you would give us? Anything that we haven't covered yet? So I guess there are a couple of other things that employers could consider above and beyond the sorts of things that we've already touched on in terms of candidate journey and in terms of you know, inclusive copy. And one area that employers can sometimes overlook is the role of the job titles that they use in terms of whether or not they are attractive to underrepresented groups. Some organisations give their roles names that work really well internally, but which someone with the right skill set externally might not actually recognise. And that sort of scenario might be off-putting for any candidate, but is potentially even more off-putting for someone from an underrepresented group, because that individual is likely to be placing a greater emphasis on finding a, work, a workplace where they feel they can really belong. So to increase engagement amongst underrepresented candidates and to increase the size of the candidate pool, employers should try as much as they possibly can to make sure that their job titles are accessible. Another thing employers could do is to map the locations they're recruiting in to understand how diverse they actually are. And if undertaking, you know, having undertaken that mapping exercise, the answer to the question is not very diverse, then they can consider what levers they might pull. So could they, for example, extend their catchment areas to include areas with more diverse populations? Or if they're thinking about moving some of their roles to be permanently remote, does that give them an opportunity to advertise in locations where, again, you've got a more diverse population? So there are a number of ways in which um, organisations can better engage diverse and inclusive candidates. So, so far, we've mostly talked about sort of singular specific groups, but a word that we're hearing a lot more often in the DEI space is intersectionality. So can you explain what intersectionality is and why it is important in the hiring process? Yeah, so intersectionality is a really interesting area. Intersectionality is about recognizing the connections between social categories, so categories like race or ethnicity, neurodiversity, class and gender. So it's about recognizing the connections between those categories and the fact that an individual 
could be a combination of those things and therefore potentially suffer compounded discrimination or disadvantage because of it, because of that combination. Translate that to employer branding and recruitment, and it means that employers have to be aware of the multiple points of potential failure in the candidate journey because of the intersectional nature of people applying for roles. Intersectionality is, I think, something that employers should consider when deciding whether or not to pursue that route of hiring campaigns focused on just one demographic because nobody is just one demographic. And so employers always need to consider who they might be excluding if they are running campaigns that focus only on one aspect of their target recruitment audience's identity or their makeup. So how do you build a recruiting campaign that incorporates intersectionality into its strategy and messaging? It's really about creating employer brands and campaigns that are inclusive. So it's about making sure that inclusion is reflected in the recruitment communication. So making an upfront commitment to DE&I in job adverts, job descriptions, and on career sites or job sites. It's also about showcasing stories from employees across a range of demographics so that potential candidates can see a range of different types of people flourishing in an organisation. And then finally, for me, it's about employers putting in that work to make any necessary adjustments in the candidate journey that they, they need to to ensure that everybody has an equal opportunity to do well. And also putting in the work to reduce the risk of bias at different stages in that process. And that includes training for you know, staff who go through the process as decision makers as well. So really, incorporating intersectionality is just about creating inclusive employer brands and inclusive campaigns. So another thing I want to talk about is socioeconomic status and the idea of social mobility. So how does social mobility play into DEI programs and how can organizations focus on that? Just to explain, I suppose, what social mobility is for people who perhaps aren't that familiar with it, because I think it's another really, really important area. Social mobility is the link between a person's occupation or income and the occupational or income of their parents. The stronger the link between offspring and parent, the lower the level of social mobility. The weaker the link, the higher the level of social mobility. So, for example, if an individual works on a production line in a factory, and that's what their parents before them did too, then the level of social mobility would be lower. But if that same individual secured a white collar role such as a managerial role, then the level of social mobility would be higher because their earning potential, for example, would be higher. Social mobility plays into DEI programs in a number of ways, and I can I can give you some examples. But I think a key point to make is that employers who consider it can do two things. They can play an important role in helping individuals achieve better outcomes. So there's a social role for employers to, to play, but actually it also contributes to organizational success because it supports employers' own 
D, E, and I objectives. You mentioned some examples there. Can you share a little more about what those look like? Yeah, so employers can engage with social mobility, for example, through schools outreach activities where they introduce students in disadvantaged areas to careers they might otherwise not get to hear about. They can do it through work experience and internships that give students real life exposure to working environments they might not otherwise get. And that's particularly exposure to office environments. And I know again from work that I've done with early careers talent that being able to put actual work experience, actual proper real life exposure to work on their CVs is really, really important to early careers talent from underrepresented groups. Employers can also play their part through the provision of apprenticeships as a way of getting early careers talent into roles that might otherwise not be accessible, as well as allowing them to continue engaging with education and gain qualifications. So there are a number of ways in which employers can engage with social mobility and the end result of all of this for them, for employers, is that they are also helping to build pipelines for their organisations and broadening and diversifying their candidate pools. So there's a social good to it, um, but there's also a, an organisational performance and candidate generation good side to it. What about for more experienced hires? So far, we've focused on sort of early careers, education. What are some ways that employers can help more experienced hires access that social mobility? One thing that I'm hearing a lot about at the moment is, is employers taking advantage of new ways of working, particularly post-pandemic. So, for example, there are employers who are talking about moving some of their roles to be fully remote, meaning that those roles can be done from anywhere. That presents an opportunity for employers to hire in areas that they haven't previously targeted, including areas of social deprivation. Examples like organisations moving to fully remote working for some roles is a way of them engaging with social mobility by presenting people who might otherwise struggle to get work with opportunities for employment. So everything we've talked about so far today, when it comes to strategies for recruiting candidates from underrepresented backgrounds, focusing on intersectionality, focusing on social mobility, all of those kind of represent a shift in strategy for so many employers. So for these employers, how can they get buy-in from within their organizations to make this shift? I think it's first of all important to recognise that change won't happen overnight. Um, you know, DE&I as a field, as an aspiration for organisations, it's very much a journey. It's, it's no way, in no way, shape or form is it a sprint. And, and within that, intersectionality and social mobility is part of that journey. But I think one of the things that we do know is that DE&I is increasingly at the top of the agenda for many organisations because not just because it's the right thing to do, but because of the increasing diversity of the communities that these organisations serve and the people that they want to sell products and services to. 
And, you know, there's, there's research out there that suggests that the better the insights your employees can provide, the more innovative and tuned in to customer needs your solutions will be, which means that the better your organizational performance will be. And when you start speaking to organizations, to boards about that performance shift, that feels like a very compelling operational reason why organizations should be driving forward with DE&I, with intersectionality and inclusive employer branding as part of that. Um, not to mention, obviously, the fact that giving everybody in, in society the chance to build a good life for themselves is something that, you know, all organizations should aspire to. So I think, you know, in terms of achieving buy into a shift in, in strategy. It's recognizing that it's not going to happen overnight, but actually organizations that engage with it in a meaningful way unlock better organizational performance as a result. So you were talking just there about this being a journey, about something that happens over time. Now, at the same time, we're facing a rather challenging hiring environment. A lot of organizations have a lot of immediate hiring needs, a lot of roles they need to fill in the immediate future. So how can employers balance those immediate needs with that long-term goal, that long-term strategy of an inclusive employer brand? It's really about adopting almost a two-pronged approach. So an approach that balances tactical, more short-term activity and interventions with longer-term planning. So some of the things that we've talked about, such as, you know, looking at advertising copy, making sure that there's a commitment to DE&I front and center in communications, adjusting criteria and job descriptions. Those sorts of things are fairly quick fixes that can be done almost immediately as a way for employers to begin to engage greater diversity of talent and broaden their candidate pool. So there are some very, you know, relatively easy, relatively quick fixes that, that employers can go for to try and meet their immediate hiring needs. Alongside these tactical activities, it's then a, a case of reviewing or auditing the other elements of the candidate journey jigsaw. So, for example, reviewing wider employer brand and recruitment communications to ensure that, you know, any commitment an organization is going to make when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion is actually backed up through inclusive storytelling um, and that that is replicated across all channels to build up a really consistent identity as an inclusive organization and a place to work. It's about doing things like looking at career sites and job sites that are to make sure that they are accessible to all potential candidates so that nobody with, for example, a disability who is perfectly able to do a job feels excluded. So there's, you know, auditing that aspect as well. And then finally, it's about looking at the different stages of the recruitment process to reduce that unconscious bias and ensure that candidates from underrepresented groups that are suitably qualified and or have the required potential stand as good a chance of getting hired as anyone else. So it's a combination of immediate tactics and interventions 
and longer term planning. But I think looking at each of these elements and particularly looking at the steps in the candidate journey will identify opportunities for interventions that are meaningful that can then be prioritised and implemented um, on an organisation's journey towards building a diverse and inclusive workplace. That's perfect. And we are almost out of time today. But it's, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? I think I would just emphasize the point that really, when it comes to engaging with potential candidates from underrepresented groups, it's about building really inclusive employer brands that appeal to multiple demographics to really foster that sense of potential belonging in an organization and it is very much about building brands that focus equally on the messaging and the stories and the candidate journey and making sure that the different parts of the process really support organizations to to bring in people from all walks of life who are suitably qualified but yeah i think it's been a a well-rounded conversation Well, it's the perfect spot for us to wrap up. Paula, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Nicole. Pleasure. And thank you for listening. If you have any questions that we didn't cover today, you can send them our way. You can email us at marketing at peoplescout.com, or you can find us on social media. Just search People Scout on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. To make sure you don't miss an episode, visit our website or subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Talking Talent is a People Scout production. Music by sound design, Brew Shutterstock. 